0: I know you'll be alright Even
1: when times get hard And you feel like you're in the dark You will see
0: Just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart You can finally
1: start To live your truth See his life. All right, welcome back everybody, welcome back. Not going to do that again to spare you my vocals, but uh, welcome back to The Truthiest Life. I'm your host, Lisa Ham, and we have a really great episode coming up this week. I want to say extra thank you for taking the time to make Truthiest Life part of your weekly routine. I'm still on my social media Instagram break, which means you didn't easily do a swipe up to get here, and I didn't have to kind of put it in front of your face to remember. So thank you so much. As for my social media break, it's going really, really well. I've just gotten really in touch with a bit more of my spiritual side, reconnected with my daily meditation practice, which kind of just got thrown out of the window a little bit over the last few weeks. I was feeling super disconnected to myself, addicted to just hitting refresh and consuming so much content that didn't necessarily serve the best me. And it's just been nice to kind of make space for the things that matter to me. Uh, not to say that you don't matter to me, social media community that has given me, you know, so much happiness over these last few years. But it's just important for me to recalibrate and recharge my batteries. And it's it's been good. And I'm so grateful that I can connect by way of this podcast and my newsletter. So it's so amazing how technology has allowed me to really recognize, first of all, that there are just options. You know, it's not just all about Instagram. There's so many ways to show up in this world. And yeah, so thank you for being here. If you're listening to this and I'm already back from my social media break. Well, anyway, I do these from time to time nonetheless. But anyway, this episode is really great. And it's with someone who is just personally really important to me in my parts of my life that You might not know so much about, but I share a little bit deeper on this podcast. My relationship with having a family member who has struggled with alcohol addiction, addiction in general, this is a part of my life that has shaped who I am. Um, Addiction rarely is solved by one stint of abstinence. And so ever since I've been pretty young, I've understood the gravity of alcohol. And as many of you know, or if you don't know, the pandemic caused relapse for many, 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 many Americans, and I'm sure non-Americans, as well as maybe brought to the surface alcohol issues for people for the first time or substance abuse issues for the first time because it has been rough and this person Rocco my guest this week entered my life serendipitously to really be the hero in my family's story this year and What I hope to bring to life here is why the truthiest life exists as much as I love talking to people that have social media followings or are experts who have written books or are celebrities in some way. I wanted this podcast because the conversations that I have with real people in real life are oftentimes so juicy and inspiring that I wanted you to be able to hear them because every single human being, you, your mom, your sister, your best friend, you have a story that has made you, you. And There's so much to draw from being vulnerable with the real people in our lives if we ask the right questions and we bring a sense of genuineness to the table of wanting to hold space for somebody. So this is Rocco's story. He's kind of an everyday guy. He's kind of a big deal too in his personal life and in his South Florida life where he's got a ton of restaurants. But he really has gone through so much of what a regular person has gone through. And a lot of bad, bad stuff as well. And yet he lives with so much Vibrant. i mean this guy just wakes up every morning with a will and a desire to be the best version of himself and he shares with us some tools and tricks of how he kind of stays on top of himself we discuss a lot we discuss alcohol abuse his you know stints in rehab failing at restaurants during covid very timely and how he you know accepted the difficulty of defeat And perhaps most interestingly, how his MS diagnosis actually changed his life for the better. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Rocco. And if you like this episode or any of these episodes, please go ahead and share them with your family and friends. That's how we get the word out. If you haven't yet rated or reviewed The Truthiest Life on Apple iTunes, please go ahead and do so. I love seeing your reviews and your support for this podcast. I hope you all are doing amazing. Let's head into this episode. Welcome back to the Truthiest Life podcast. Today, we're joined by my friend Rocco, the man behind Rocco's Tacos, a popular restaurant with most of its locations in Florida right now. For some background, I didn't know Rocco until this year, but he's known many of my family members that live in Florida and through various life interesting, serendipitous ways, we call it now. This year, by destiny, he entered my life and he did heroic things to help my family get through a very tough time. And the more I learned, about him, the more I was inspired and I wanted to know more. So Rocco, you started from the bottom and you clearly made it to the top. But what's really interesting about you is now that you're on the quote unquote top, I think you've found that it's not all butterflies and rainbows as you may expect Um, from sobriety to an MS diagnosis and more. You continue to be a man on a mission and that's why you live your truthiest life. So welcome. So excited to have you here. Thank you.
0: I appreciate you having me.
1: So, you have endured a lot in your what, 46 years or so?
0: Uh, yes, I wish I was 46, but 47 years, yeah.
1: 47. Did I miss your birthday? When's your birthday? June. June, okay. No, I met. I met you right after that, I think. So a lot in your 47 years. Most people probably think you're just a restaurateur. But let's start from the beginning because you're actually not even a Floridian. You're a New Yorker. So what brought you down to Florida to begin with?
0: I lived in New York, moved to California, moved back to New York when I was 13. Lived in a little place called Hoppog, Long Island. And I stayed there for a couple of years. Tried to go to college for three weeks. It didn't work out so well. And I went back to Long Island and I held various jobs, all which I got fired from. I worked at a little brokerage firm called Stratton Hookmont, which was the Wolf of Wall Street. That didn't work out so well. Everybody's seen the movie already. So I won't go into that. And I ended up getting dropped off on the Jersey Turnpike in August of uh, 1997. And my cousins told me to get to Florida. And I ended up here Labor Day of 1997. And now I've been in Florida most of my life
1: back up a moment what do you mean they dropped you off on the term
0: my cousins they said to me that it's time for you to leave New York because I was going to get into trouble or have some sort of disasters I was a nothing man going nowhere like I said all kinds of different jobs as my friends were graduating college I was getting into trouble and uh, they decided it would have been a good idea for me to move here my father too lived here and uh, I drove with two hundred dollars at a mobile gas card that's how old I am and left New York to drive down to Florida I arrived here on Labor Day in 1997 I uh, parked my car in front of a restaurant down here in West Palm Beach where my office is and I walked in to try to get a job as a waiter I was very cocky and arrogant and um, they wouldn't hire me and as luck would have it I turned around I begged the guy for a job as a busboy, making you know two three hundred dollars a week. And uh, that's where I got my job. That's where I planted my seed. That's how I ended
1: up $200, no credit card, literally. Just $200 to your name on a trip down to Florida, by car, and gas money. And gas
0: money, and then uh, I lived with a family friend, which, I'm sorry, with with a friend, and then I lived with my uncle, and then I ended up kind of figuring out where I was in life. Father owned the restaurants in Long Island, Locust Valley, Great Neck, uh, you know all these places in Hop So I had hospitality in my blood, and lo and behold, I was personable. Which I thought I'm going to just harness in on this hospitality thing, and that's so I ended up staying in the restaurant business and nightclubs at the same time
1: in South Florida or in Florida. In,
0: in the West Palm Beach area, like West Palm Beach mm-hmm. was my and still is my home base.
1: Okay, but uh, did you grow up like financially comfortable, or was that two hundred dollars?
0: so I came from a Really bad childhood, I was, had some physical mental abuse as a child from a family member. When I went to go live with my father, he did the best he could with what he had, but he was a restaurant man. I shared a bedroom with my father growing up in an apartment. Um, I never had my own bedroom until I was about 18. I, I didn't want for anything. Um, he tried as best as he could. Um, my parents were separated, so it was me and my sister and my father in a two bedroom apartment. I, I never, never really struggled. When I came here, I did. And, you know, I needed to figure out how to get through things. Financially, nothing was really ever given to me. So, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, I appreciate everything I have.
1: It's super interesting when we talk about like you know you said that there was emotional and physical abuse in your house, and yet you said you didn't struggle then. It was once you left the house that you were on your own. Did the struggle happen? So it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah,
0: it, well, it's part of my whole story, I guess, as the as everything unfolds. The stuff that you put into your closet from you know it was from when I was four until I was thirteen. And you kind of put that stuff away and then I guess, you know, as my life developed, I tried to put it away, put it away until I couldn't put it away anymore. It's
1: so like the shadow that chases you around yeah. and until you confront that shadow
0: right, only okay. with your problems when you have to, they say, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's for sure. But I mean they're always kind of popping up if we if we don't deal with them. You were a bus boy, and then I believe you ended up buying that same restaurant that you Yeah worked out. So
0: then um, what ended up happening is I kind of started running around town and I was Rocco and um, I worked as a, a door guy at a couple of nightclubs. So I kind of started to make a name for myself. Of, oh, have you met Rocco, this guy at Rocco? And, you know, I did various things to get my name out there. And then I ended up leaving here, West Palm, and I went to go work in Boca. And I worked at a very successful restaurant in a place called Meisler Park. And I also made a name for myself there. I worked at a steakhouse and I started to work in all these restaurants. Lo and behold, um, I met a girl and and, uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to get out of the restaurant business because I didn't really want to work days anymore. And I thought it was cool that I could go to work at 10 o'clock at night, come home at seven o'clock in the morning, sleep. And it was a cool thing. So I got out of the restaurant business for a little bit of time and I started becoming like a nightclub promoter. And then I worked in a hotel and things went on and on and on. And then um, I met another girl. We fell in love, and she said, "You know, you're coming home smelling like perfume, and you have lipstick on you, even though if you're not doing me to get out of the nightclub business." So, okay. So my friend opened up a Mexican restaurant in Boca called Moquila, and when we were drinking, we couldn't say we wanted more tequila; it just came out as moquila. So we opened up this restaurant, (laughs) and he asked me to be the maître d'. Two weeks later, I was the general manager. But it was in 2005, so it was on the forefront of when tequila started becoming really popular. Sex in the City and all these skinny margaritas. And it wasn't the tequila we had when we were children and getting sick. So I said, you know, you might have something here. I was a little bit smarter with my money now. I sold an apartment and I came in do a little bit of money on my own. I looked at the girl and I said, I'm going to go around the United States and I'm going to research and copy as many Mexican places as I can. I'm going to come back and open a Mexican restaurant. So I did. I left. I went and 64 restaurants later drove a truck from San Diego to San Francisco. I did all of this crazy stuff. But I came up conceptually what is to be known today as Rocco's Tacos. The irony of the story is that I walked into a restaurant to get food. The guys that I worked for as a busboy was at the bar. And I said, hey, Bill, what are you doing? What am I doing? I want to open a Mexican restaurant. He goes, Rocco, we have the lease of the restaurant that used to work at was Big City Tavern. Two weeks later, we got together. I ended up buying the restaurant that I was a busboy in 10 years before. So it was like this... Cinderella story and then that was my first restaurant
1: so your first restaurant that you bought was the first restaurant that you busboyed at yeah wow yeah. and I have to say I mean really the irony is that you were destined for a taco you couldn't be Rocco's pizza you had to be Rocco's tacos like it was there all
0: along yeah it, it wasn't like Bob's burritos but it was Rocco's tacos yeah. and tequila bar it ended up being really successful and we I didn't realize how successful it was until uh, Kelly Ripa on national syndicate she came into the restaurant a couple times because she was in the equine world and she went back after vacation and she was on national TV to say that how was your vacation she goes, I met this guy Rocco my mother ended up she was alive at the time called me from Kansas and she's like hey you're on the news and I was like Whoa! so like it was this phenomenon of you know people loving this Mexican cuisine and then I've been known to get on the bar with these white platform shoes And pour tequila so there's like a whole thing that morphed out of it
1: you have an energy yeah that like you know people would pay big pr money to get kelly ripa to say that and all you were doing is like working on your trade, making your however many square foot restaurant the best restaurant. And you could feel that energy when somebody cares more about the experience of each person that walks in versus what it looks like on TV. And you ended up getting the the TV press. So I've actually never been to a Rocco's Tacos, believe it or not, but obviously it's on my to-do list and everybody seems to know it. And you say irony and serendipitous. And when we got to meet this year, like we called them like witchy moments. Yeah. Like we, you and I kept having like witchy moments where things just were falling into place very strangely or, you know, you'd say something and then I'd think of something. Even I walked into a coffee shop two weeks ago, my favorite coffee shop. I had just booked you for this podcast and a sticker on the back of a girl's laptop said Rocco's Tacos. And I was like, this guy's every, like, has he just been circling my life this whole time? How many Rocco's Tacos do we have now?
0: We have nine restaurants uh, that are currently in open. We did have 10. October 1st, I had to um, close my first Rocco's, which is bittersweet in New York, where I'm from, pandemic related. Everybody always wants to go to the weddings. Nobody wants to go to the funerals. So I went up there myself, right? surgery. And, you know, I had a spiritual moment and, you know, I accepted defeat and it's hard. It it was difficult, but when one door, every every end, there's a new beginning. So I I embraced it. And now I'm out in the field actively looking for new spaces that I could open in Florida. I think that it's going to be better for me to have restaurants closer that I could touch, see, and feel. And with the current market conditions, outdoor seating happens to be the best thing. So I'm actually a letter of intent I just put in for a restaurant in Florida, and I'm going to look at another one on Friday.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you call it bittersweet, so I think that kind of shows your point of view here. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is, like, defeat in the middle of COVID, one restaurant down in New York yeah. in particular, which, you know, has the strictest rules. Is I, I was so shocked that you were even calling it defeat. Like, it's it's of course, it, it hurts, but... Yeah. I mean, how many employees do you have?
0: So pre-pandemic, um, we had about 983 employees, and I did everything I could. It was the hardest day of my life, uh, March 13th, when this happened. And we let go everybody, I crying here and all the fun stuff that goes with it. It was very, very, very tough. And I think we've hired back uh, 850 employees right now. We had 93 wow. that worked in New York, and unfortunately, we weren't able to like move them somewhere else.
1: Well, I think you've done an incredible job so far dealing with all of that and also dealing with the second half of that, which is, you know, a lot of people either dealt with newfound addiction and alcoholism during COVID or they relapse. So let's get a little bit into that part of your story as a restaurateur, the guy pouring tequila. You're also sober. So what's, what's the story there?
0: Interestingly enough, I was always able to drink like everybody else, you know, I did what? I guess people do and drank beer in high school, smoked weed and, you know, had fun. And then I found a different kind of dry substance and there's no shame in my game. I did cocaine and I think, you know, I had fun and maybe I had too much fun. And being in the nightclub business, it was always like, hey, can I buy a drink? Can I buy this? Can I buy that? And I I was able to maintain somewhat of uh, a structured life. And in uh, 2009, I was flying to Bimini and I couldn't move my legs. And I was like, well, something's going on here. And uh, I went to a bunch of doctors and they said to me um, that I had Lyme disease. Um, I had a house in Fire Island in New York and I must have got bit by a tick. So I took the doxycycline and I got better and everything kind of went away. So then I ended up having an adult tonsillectomy and uh, I'm going to feed into two stories at once because they go together. I severed my olfactory nerve. I got in a car accident. I tried to fight a fraternity once in Binghamton, New York, and I got hit in the head, and I I cut my olfactory nerve off, so I can't smell or taste. Uh, My taste is a little bit better than my smell, but since I'm 24. So when I went, the lady at the ear, nose, and throat doctor, she said, you have to get an MRI with and without contrast, and I did, and it showed that I had lesions in my head. So I went for all these tests, and they said that it's – It might have been multiple sclerosis, but the tests, I was asymptomatic. I didn't have, so they thought it was either radioactive isolated syndrome or it was from severe head trauma. I've been hit in the head with a baseball bat, a couple other things along the way, boxed. And I kind of left it alone, but my drinking got worse. My hangovers were so bad, there was not enough pills in the bottle to drink. So I got married once and I'm divorced. And at my wedding, I won't forget, my best friend goes, you know, if you have a drink in the, it'll be the hair of the dog or whatever. So I figured that I could have a drink in the morning and it would make me normal. Well, I had a party in South Beach, my 39th birthday, because that's what people do when they're 39. And uh, it was big <laughs> gigantic party and I missed it. I got so intoxicated and I took benzodiazepine that I missed my party. My friends, it was a huge party. the solo house a big party, I missed it. I woke up alone. I woke up like naked and afraid and scared and everybody was gone. And I checked myself into rehab the next day. I went to rehab for 15 days and um, I got out. And like every good alcoholic does is thinks that they could work their program. And I tried to work my program. Three months later, I was drinking, doing the same thing. I did that again. And um, during that time, I had gotten divorced and all of this other stuff happened. And I met another girl and I thought it would've been a good idea to have a kid. We had a baby and I thought that was gonna keep me sober. I even bought a dog and I named him Doc because I said, Doc's gonna make me, you know. Loan and behold, I went to rehab again. <laughs> In April 15th of 2015, and I did 28 days of sub you know, program. That year on May 25th, my best friend committed suicide in front of me, shot himself in the head. And uh, I stayed sober during that time. And then November 5th, now my girlfriend had left. I had all these consequences along the way. November 5th of uh, 2016, I started drinking. And I drank for three months straight. I drank about 75 to 100 bottles of the 50 ml airplane bottles a day. And I could go into A daughter found me floating in a swimming pool. I mean, completely out of my mind. On February 5th, I had some intervention at my house. I have a very interesting family. And somebody came with a baseball bat. And they told me that if I didn't go to rehab tomorrow, that they would break my legs and my arms and put me in the hospital long enough that I could get sober. And for whatever reason, I decided to go to rehab. I went to a place called Crossroads in Antigua, and I had an alcoholic seizure during the time that I was there that probably could have killed me. And I said that, uh, got on my hands and knees, and I said that this is it. And I I haven't had a drink since. Fast forward to April 15th of that year, I was laying in bed. I got paralyzed on the whole left side of my body, come to find out that I have relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. So... I got like 2016 was an interesting year. I got sober and I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the same time. All
1: right. A lot to unpack in those sentences, some of which I have heard you say before, but not the part about, I don't think your family, you know, saying they're going to break your legs if you don't go. It's an interesting show of love. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. I have the baseball bat here in my office.
1: That's a good memory for yeah, you yeah, because they,
0: they they I have it right here it's called the big stick it's sitting behind my desk and it's a constant reminder of why you don't go back and drink you know like <laughs> you, you know I don't know whether he was going to do it or not but I do have the bat
1: But it's an interesting show of love, just so you know, I don't (laughs) think maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's how most families, you know, intervene. But as clearly it was an effective method for you. There's a lot to unpack there. So just starting with the alcoholic seizure, I don't know if people understand how alcohol addiction can be that severe. So what is an alcoholic seizure?
0: So. Because I drank to the point of no return, blackout drinking or whatever, and if you have ever gotten that drunk, and people have to remember, I drank for three months, like straight every day. My body was so consumed with this poison that it's very, very dangerous to detox off alcohol. It's probably more dangerous than any substance whatsoever. You know, they say kicking heroin or opioids or anything, but I had... Seven days of a detox that, if you were to watch, A Clockwork Orange, it it was just the most horrific, horrible experience that I've ever gone through. They had to take me into rehab in a wheelchair, and they put me on Librium. They wouldn't put me on a benzodiazepine, which they put most people on, it's like an Ativan or Lorazepam, or you know, Mm -hmm. they they would use that to cut. But because I did benzos they wouldn't put me on it so anyway i was in a controlled environment in a room it was scary as hell i went to go get my vitals taken and i woke up and i was strapped to a hospital bed I had all the stuff in me but i had an alcoholic seizure because of my withdrawals and then it took me six days to have any sort of clarity i mean it i almost drank to death i mean that's really what happened my mother died and you call me witchy or whatever, and whether people believe me or not, there's something in Alcoholic Anonymous, they say, that is a spiritual experience. For some reason, every day, every night, every day, I had this vision of my mother talking to me, saying that I was going to get through it, and all of these things that were going to be all right. And I, I remember vividly. I'm sure it was a hallucination, and there's some scientific reason behind it. But I do remember during that period of time that my mother was very comforting and calming to me, to get me through it. And it was interesting. And I, I just said, this is it. You know, I had a beautiful little girl. I had a great life. I had money, fortune, fame, whatever you call it. But something was missing. And then I got diagnosed with MS. I had a doctor tell me, you know, that you're very dangerous. You're not an alcoholic. He said, Rocco, you can drink, but you were drinking to self-medicate. And I was like, no way. And I just never drank again.
1: So what is what does he mean to self-medicate? Because you said that, you know, you never worked on the things that you put in the closet? Was it like the things you put in the closet or more related to the MS he meant?
0: So I drank because I liked to drink. I mean, I did, I, I loved the drink. I loved the way that it made me feel. I loved the things that I did. I loved, you know, sex, rock and roll, whatever I did, I thought it was better when I was drinking. I don't know why. And I'm not going to lie and say that I don't think, al- I think alcohol got me to where I am because I was part of the party, you know, mm-hmm. to be around a guy drinking milk when everybody else is drinking, you know, and having fun. They're like, oh, well, why don't you drink? And to be honest with you, I don't like being around drunk people anymore when you're not drunk. It's kind of like, what are you going to do? But self-medicating, when he said that, is when you drink, it has a certain effect on your body. For me, for some reason, the inflammation that caused where my brain or whatever, there was no, no pill, no, there was not any alcohol. <laughs> It was another sip of alcohol that made me feel flat. I've never drank on MS medication. I'm never going to drink on MS medication. But that's what I mean about self-medicating. Mm-hmm. What you just said, too, is putting those things back to the beginning of our conversation.
1: Yeah,
0: You have to live life on life's terms. Since I've been through the program and I continue to do it, and I've got sponsees. I had somebody here before our meeting that I was reading the mm-hmm. book with. And I've been able to work with other alcoholics. I've been a better father, better friend, better boyfriend, better son, better everything. And it just it for me and people can drink, you can pour tequila on my head, it's fine. I won't drink it, but I just think that I've ate I, I love this part of my life. I love that I got sober when I did. And I think that the way that I'm living is much better than the way that I was.
1: When you got diagnosed with MS, you created this really cute video with your daughter Charlie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that went pretty viral on the internet. I'll try and link it in the show notes because everyone should, first of all, just see the love between you and your daughter. But you also mentioned that your daughter found you in the, the, you said, the pool? Yeah,
0: yeah. So I, I have reconstructive surgery on one side of my face. I tripped falling in my backyard and I ended up hitting my face on the side of the pool and I fell half in, half out. And she ended up finding me and I have a picture in my phone. I ended up in room six in uh saint mary's hospital in the beginning in like the second week of december and it still didn't stop i went home i think i stayed sober for a week i had all this surgery whatever and then i started drinking
1: and i also know that charlie is a big part of your sobriety so if that wasn't the moment why do you do it for charlie what is your inner motivation because i know being a father is the most important thing to you
0: everybody loves their kid my daughter Happens to be like my best friend and now she's seven. She's like this little cool person, you know. She's funny. I have a great time with her. But she knows she, she's, she knows that I'm sober and she knows that I don't drink and I don't smoke. And she's very conscious of that. When people off, we go to a restaurant, people are like, Do you want a cocktail? She'll look at the waiter and be like, no, my dad doesn't drink. Not yesterday. The day before, I've got a little trophy case. It sounds crazy, but I've got like this thing where all these chips are in my room for different periods of sobriety and we went over them and I had to explain to her yesterday or the day before why, what sober is. I tell her everything. I tell her I had a problem with drinking and we go over these things. She should know why, I don't, why I'm different. She's very, very, very conscious of multiple sclerosis. And you, know, you have to be careful with children and I see a child psychologist myself, um, but I also see a child psychologist for her to be a better dad. And you have to be careful. Sometimes their child becomes the parent and you don't want her to feel like that, you know. I'm hurt, and you know this, that. So when I just, I just had surgery on my foot. She's very cute. We're laying and talking, and she goes. She grabs my head. She goes. You know, I'm always going to take care of you. She's like, sick. and I'm like, I know. But I don't want her to feel like a caretaker because sometimes children feel that. But she, you know, yeah. she's good, and she's on my team. Um, I have a website called Team Rocco. And, you know, we we raise money for MS
1: yeah a lot of money right how much money are you have you raised a
0: little over seven hundred thousand, which a lot of people are like (laughs) it's not a lot but i i'm I'm very conscious of about not getting corporate sponsorship because i think it's easy
1: okay i don't think there's anyone listening here who's saying that's not a lot so maybe in in the i don't know in
0: comparison to be going to like you know general electric or somebody and saying hey can you donate multiple sclerosis interesting disease It's gotten much more interesting later on in life. You know, as I learn more about it, a lot more people are touched by it. But my $700,000, and when I say mine, none of the money's gone to me, but my fundraiser, most of the money comes from you or it comes from Joe or the mailman. It's a grassroots. And what I wanted to do is do it that way so I could get as many people to donate a dollar or two or three as I could, because then they can learn about how the disease is affecting people that they love are not affecting people that they love because it's such a cruel and unusual disease.
1: So, you know, you also mentioned you kind of glossed over a lot of things. I mean, including your friend killing himself in front of you, really traumatic things. And, you know, if we went through that to, you know, multiple stints in rehab, to MS, to, you know, your daughter finding you in the pool, all these, I'm sure there's more moments that, you know, I don't even know about and we're just scratching the surface. Oh, and let me also mention that by hitting the olfactory nerve you can't smell or taste very well you own a restaurant that serves food and alcohol Mm -hmm. and somehow you're driven every single day with not just putting one foot in front of the other but like you have a big mission every day I think most people I would think or you know would struggle to find joy but somehow what is your joy what is what is your gasoline in the morning
0: here maybe I mean I wake up on I turned my head and, I, and I'm, I'm in a very healthy relationship, the first one I've ever had. And, you know, i got a beautiful girlfriend who you know. You know, i built this life that is just so different than I expected. You know, there's a great poem by a woman named Linda Ellis called The Dash. It talks about, you know, when you die, what you have. And you get your name and then you get the date that you're born and the date you die. But in between, all you have is this dash and spend it well. And that's what I believe. It's not about, Anybody can drive a fast car or buy a big house or buy stuff with money that you don't have to impress people you don't like. But my life experience, how I met you, spent time with you, I've spent time with your family. I enjoy and I cherish every second of every minute that I have humanly to spend with other people. I'm I'm a good time guy. I like walking into my restaurant. And what makes me rich is that I can take somebody and I can say, hey, how are you? My name is Rocco, Lisa, how's your day? This, I could learn a little bit about you. And even if you don't spend any money in the restaurant, just getting to know you. And I've met so many friends and family and all of these people along the way, that's what drives You know, I'm excited to do this podcast because it's going to make me a better man. I'm going to hang up today. I'm going to have a better day because I did this. So I, I value every minute of every day, every second. And the things that you take for granted, and this is interesting, and I don't know if you can embrace this, but I sat across from a guy that had multiple sclerosis in New York, and he was blowing himself around the room in a wheelchair. And he couldn't move any of anything, how cruel that is that I can. And I asked him a question, and I said, what drives you? And he looked at me, and he goes, you. And I, I said, really? And he goes, yeah, because you are the strength that the people need to have when they get diagnosed with this and the other things. And I think if I can do that for one person, like this guy did it for me, and if he's got the strength, what do I have to do?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you certainly live out every word that you just said. And a few moments ago, you said, you know, I love my daughter, and you said everybody loves their child. But the difference is, I heard you say on another podcast interview that you did that your, you know, your dog died, and your daughter needed you that day. And yes, that's true. But you also own nine restaurants. You do a lot of different things, and you seem to know how to prioritize those seemingly. Of course, they're important, but I don't think most people make the shifts because the other stuff feels so you feel so needed at your job. So you do a really good job of being there for the person who needs it, even though you're you must be letting down other people in that moment, I would think. Right.
0: So with business, you guys are in business, too. You have to hire people that are better than you Yeah. to run your business, which gives me the prime ability to manage my life. I don't micromanage my business and I'm sure that there's some people that do, but you have to separate work and you have to separate family and you have to separate, you know, a lot of different things in life. So my job where I'm here now, I've got a big office, i got a lot of people and there's a girl downstairs that's doing a better job at accounting than I do. Do I need to micromanage it? No, that's what I hired her for. So that gives me the ability today to drop my daughter off at school like I did. I forgot her face mask and we had all of this fun stuff that we had to do and I'm able to do that. I'm able to do this today because I've hired people better than you now. Does my business need me? Of course. I just spent two hard weeks in New York with the cast on unloading a restaurant. And, you know, there's certain things that I have to do, but technology's made it very interesting for me because I could FaceTime my daughter and I could read her a bedtime story, but yet I could also sit with a guy and talk to him about dismantling the restaurant at the same time. So, healthy balance in your life. And I would look at your stuff that you do. You have to make time for yourself. Because that's
1: all we have. It, it's all we have. It's the most limited resource. And I think we get it wrong. M- not we. Well, of course, I get it wrong. But the general person gets it wrong because everything feels so imminent all the time. Right. So, you know, I saw firsthand how you re- how you entered my life, I should say. Like I said, you knew multiple people in my family over the last few years from an MS connection to business in Florida. You know, you're, you've been in my life. But over the last year or so, a family member of mine went through relapse addiction and, you know, went to a 30-day rehab, not something this family member has ever done. And I kind of spent those 30 days thinking, well, what next? What next? And family member, you know, came back home from the 30 days and I kind of expected it to be, you know, easy. And next thing I knew, you were there. And I'm like, I'm confused. Why is this man I've never heard of with my family member? <laughs> and how is he with my family member? Doesn't he have a life of his own? And basically, just so people understand addiction, it's it goes beyond the 30-day rehab and... Oftentimes, people need a support system afterwards, whether it's paid or a friend. And your your job was kind of like sober coaching. But again, you came out of nowhere. I'd never met you before. And you just put your life on hold from managing nine restaurants, two or 10 at the time, actually, 10 restaurants to help somebody for what I would call no reason. <laughs> what would you call no reason? Why did you do that?
0: Interesting enough. So the family member in question and anonymity is very important to a lot of people in sobriety. The irony of the, the situation was with that when I needed help, there was somebody in your family that reached out to me for no reason and ended up helping me with something that I had no idea about, which is multiple sclerosis. Everybody should know that the doctor that I have in New York, who had a year waiting list, which I pride myself in saying that he's my doctor and the reason why I'm able to do the things I can today is because I was introduced to this man not by anybody else, but through your family, is my doctor. Not for any donation or anything. The guy just happened to be my doctor and happened to get in there. I never forgot that, even way before I helped out. So that was something that's in my head. And the kindness and compassion from your family to, to me resonates in almost everything I do today, when somebody calls me that has MFS or whatever. So with addiction, it's very interesting. It's one alcoholic working with another or one addict working with another. Most people never understand it, that haven't had to struggle through it or been in the depths with somebody or foxhole buddies or whatever. It was the perfect time during the pandemic, unfortunately, for me. Saying pandemic, unfortunately, gave me the ability to go and spend time with another struggling alcoholic. And it sounds crazy. It helped me more than it helped them because I was able to spend... Let's talk about the 30 days. The 30 days that the person was in the rehab, I was on the phone. It was almost like I went too. Then coming out of it, it's not a light switch where you're like, oh my God, the guy's fixed or the girl's fixed and you get out of rehab. It's just a foundation for the rest of your life. And you have to put all of those, you know, practice those principles in all your affairs. Otherwise, you're going to go through the same thing. So when I spent time up there, or where I was for a couple of weeks, I spent as much time as I could until I wasn't needed anymore because it was time. It was time for me to move on, and it was time for them to move on. And I'm happy to say that, from what I gather, it's still working. And that's how it works. And you could put a bunch of alcoholics in the same room, and we could be, you know, all different colors, shapes, sizes, genders, and everything. But the commonality is that we'll all have, and we'll always get along. That's what's great about an AA meeting is we suffer. And the only way that it works is we suffer together. And then we, we suffer apart. I don't know if that makes sense. So my father had a heart thing when I came to see you guys, but most people would sit with their dad and, but, but I knew he was going to be okay. So I came and I took myself out of the situation and I came and I did that, which is what I do every day. And there's no financial value or, you know, you can't do something you can't give to get. And with AA, the way that the program supposed to work is, I'm helping you and you're and that it's really weird and you're helping me. I'm gonna give you a little joke that they say AA is like an orgy that you walk into a room with a bunch of people you don't know and yeah. you walk out feeling great and you don't know who to thank. <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> so, like that's the way it is, you know, and that's how I love and I mean I, I do it. I'm not an AA guru. I just I work the steps. I have sponsees and people, I have a sponsor and I work the program, but you've hung out with me. I don't tell you, Hey, don't try. Your problem's not my problem. You know?
1: No, you don't. But I will tell you that um, I'm doing a sober October in your honor and in the honor of, you know, those that I care about and any those that I don't even know. Just to take a moment and, you know, starting here, recognizing that you had an alcoholic seizure. I don't know if everybody understands the gravity of alcohol because it's legal and more than legal, how normalized it is in, you know, at least 2020 to drink during a pandemic to when I was in college, like. Blacking out was so normalized. People didn't, you know, blink twice about it. And I just like to really take that step back and recognize that alcohol is no joke. And it doesn't mean I'm going to be sober forever. You know, I've never had a problem. But let me take a moment to really honor the gravity of those who are fighting every day to not have a drink, even though it's not a fight for you. You said, you know, people can pour alcohol on your head. But People that are working the system every day, like I just bow down to you because being awake in life, you know, starting from the beginning where you said like all that stuff in the closet, I called it a shadow, facing that every day, the traumas of our life, micro, macro, to be awake to that every day is the hardest thing, but also the most freeing thing. But I think it feels so hard, which is why we turn to numbing agents like alcohol. So, you know, I my hat's off to you. Thank you. So. You know, I just for also a little bit of a funny story, Evan and I, my husband, we have one regret from our wedding, which was almost a year ago. And when we were planning the wedding, we really didn't want to have anybody that we didn't know at our wedding. Obviously, you know, my, my family helped out in throwing it and I couldn't really, you know, tell my dad who, to, who not to invite. But, you know, my dad and my stepmom kind of have like a separate life in Florida that I know nothing about. So my dad gives me this list of, People And there's all these, you know, people from Florida that I've heard of, but they're kind of like bozos in my mind. And I'm like, I'm not having them at my wedding. They don't know me from, you know, Joe Schmo on the street. And he narrows down the list and it's just a few people. And one of it says Rocco, just Rocco. And again, I've never heard I know that you've intersected with my family before, but I've never heard of Rocco other than just maybe the name. So I call my dad and I'm trying to be like really patient because his list is just so stupid, for lack of a better word. He gave me one. He gave Rocco, not Rocco with your last name. Nothing. I call my dad with Evan on the phone. And I'm like, all right. I see you have Rocco on the list. And he goes, yeah, Rocco and his wife. And I'm like, okay, what is Rocco's last name? And he goes, Taco. So Evan is like trying to take him seriously, writing down Rocco Taco <laughs> and then next to it we write down Mr. and Mrs. Taco and I just threw my pen and I was like F this I'm not inviting Mr. and Mrs. Taco to my wedding if he doesn't have a last name <laughs> so you know Evan and I laughed about this for months not even knowing who you were lo and behold Mr. Taco yourself you walk into our lives months later and you're the hero that we didn't know existed so our one wedding regret is not inviting mr and mrs taco <laughs> to my <laughs> wedding for real um anyway okay i heard you say that you know, Clearly, you, you prioritize your day very well and nothing gets in your way, it doesn't seem. Like if there's a fly, you swat it out. I heard you say that you do something the night before called the consequence list. Yeah. Can you tell us about the consequence list? Because I think there's something to framing the next day that we could all take something from.
0: Yeah, so every action, it does have a reaction or it goes on a shelf. And then I, I think that in my head, you put stuff away and it just sits there and you don't deal with it. So when I got sober, there's something called taking your inventory, right? People take their inventory or if you have a, you know, and you look at what's on your shelf. So one of the things that I thought was going to be really good is everything that I've ever done. And I've had some really bad consequences and I hurt a lot of people, you know, I, I, and you, you have to go through making amends with people. And some people aren't ready for your apology, but you know, in, in, in the steps you go through that and you tell them and admitting your own faults and making yourself vulnerable. It's hard. So I came up with this idea that the night before I go to bed, then I'll make a consequence list. It usually always starts off with if I drank today and then in the morning, which is today, like I did, I have a consequence list from last night and it can be anything. Like if I don't go to the gym tomorrow, I won't, you know, or, you know, there's certain things, but usually it starts off if I drank today and in the morning I look at Consequentially, because I didn't do those things, how my day today is going to go. And perfect example is this. If I drank today and one of the things that I wrote on there was I'll miss my appointments. So I wouldn't have been on this podcast today and I would have let you down. You understand where this it's a trickle. Yeah. That's what I try to do every night before I go to bed. And I have a daily routine. I just did a podcast with a friend of mine. And, you know, it's very important to keep that routine. Most people get up in the morning, you know, so people take some time and I see you meditate. I've let that go. I haven't really meditated to the point where I need to. I need to get back into that. And and that's one of the things that's also there. You know, if I meditate tomorrow, I'll feel better about So it works in a couple of different ways, but I do do that. It's usually five things.
1: Yeah, yeah. That sounds like you – it really helps you kind of figure out your next step because you're you're thinking about it. You're framed in. Okay, a few more questions, and then I'll let you go and get back to managing your restaurants. (laughs) What gets you out of bed in the morning?
0: People, you, this – People. I mean,
1: Team Rocco. Yeah.
0: Obviously, having a child is a big part of it. But I I have a lot of people that rely on me to make the best decisions uh, I can for them. And I realized that during the pandemic that it's bigger than me. But if I didn't manage the restaurants to the best of my ability, and there's not just 900 employees, there's 900 families or people that you know, and, and, and they rely, they love their job and they come to work and I have to make some really hard decisions, but I have to make some decisions that are really great sometimes. And, you know, people get married in, in the restaurants and stuff like that. So it's like having a big family. I want to get up in the morning every day because someday I might not be able to, when you have multiple sclerosis and you look somebody in the eye across from you, that's 47 years old and they're in a wheelchair and they can't get up that's really, I mean, it's hard to take in, you know, without me getting emotional, it's tough. I'm afraid that one day that I won't be able to walk. I don't take an elevator. I take the stairs and pretty intense guy. And if you lived like I did, you know, I'm, I'm intense. I'm, I'm, I I try to push myself to the limits and probably push myself too hard, but I get up in the morning because I want to be able to walk my daughter into school. Like I did today with an umbrella. And it sounds crazy, but you know, it's walking, we take it for granted.
1: No, I, I, de- I think it's it's not crazy. And those little things that we can count of what we can do, whether disease related or not, is what adds up to our ability to get up in the morning. OK, do you believe that everything happens for a reason? And you could say yes, no shorthand, or you can elaborate on either.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, and you called me witchy, and I, I do believe that there's some sort of sixth sense about me. I'm just going to say this. I had to go through what I went through to be who I am
1: today. Exactly. No, I mean, you're, you're putting your hands up like visibly, but that is why I, you know, wanted you as a guest. It's because everything that you've endured has allowed you to be who you are and you own that. You call yourself an open book and without the shame holding you down like a weight, you are really successful as Rocco living out every single day. So that's exactly how I see you. And I'm glad that you can kind of see that yourself. And then the last question is really fun. And I'm really curious to hear what you're going to say. If you were a tree, what type of tree would you be?
0: Like the first thing that comes to mind is like a bonsai tree. Okay. And I'm going to send you a picture. I'm going to text it to you. But you're going to you're gonna think this is wild, right? So getting off the subject, I was going to go to a hibiscus tree. And I'm going to explain mm-hmm. why. There's a movie, you know, The Professional?
1: I haven't seen that Hallie one. Portman. Okay, yeah.
0: Carries this, Leon is the guy in there. They have this little tree. So when I was out of my mind, I went and bought a hibiscus tree. And this is about seven years ago, maybe. Uh, yeah, just about. And I've got this tree that I had at my old house. While I was moving and I was drunk and we were moving everything, I had the moving company turn around. I took the tree.
1: No. <laughs>
0: it's better the tree's still at my house they're just doing a massive renovation at my house right now all the landscaping's gone but that tree and i kept it's just bizarre that you went at the tree i'm going to send you a picture my whole house is under construction and there's one hibiscus tree in a plant in the in in a pot wow weird and i call the tree matilda it's just weird that you asked that i don't know
1: well does the tree have meaning to you like did Uh,
0: the tree and this, I'm not kidding. I mean, I swear I'm not making this up for this. When I took the tree from the other house and I brought it to my new house I lived where the salt water comes in or whatever, and the tree was in the backyard. It was almost, it literally, as I was in my drunkest and I went to rehab, it was almost dead. I came home. Oh. They said the tree was going to die or whatever. And then I brought the tree back and then I was trying to get it to come back to life when I got sober. I was like nurturing this mm-hmm. tree. And then all of a sudden out of the nowhere, it had like a leaf. And I was like, holy moly. So does it have sentimental meaning? It's, yeah. I mean, I've planted this tree. I put a plaque where my yeah. It was, it's
1: it's a reflection of you. I mean, you were killing yourself and then- And it's
0: got orange hibiscus, which is happens to be one of my favorite colors.
1: Oh, you need to send me a picture for sure. well you know witchy stuff for sure all right well thank you so much for your time i am so inspired by you and thank you for being you rocco thank
0: you so much for everything and i will share that anybody can reach out to me anytime if they're struggling with something i mean the only thing that i tell people is you can't ask me for money um because (laughs) a lot of money you know if you if (laughs) you're happy to to share my spirit strength and hope with, with anyone
1: what's the best way for them to reach you
0: Rocco's Tacos.com, that would have been on my wedding invitation. And uh, you <laughs> can reach out. There's a website that's pretty cool called Join Team Rocco, and people look at that and they'll ask me about MS and what I'm doing and what I don't do. And I don't have all the answers. I just have suggestions um, of what I've done in my life that help. And if they don't, they don't. But if they do, I'm-
1: well you've positively impacted my life in so many ways and thousands and thousands of others so we will put all that in the show notes and I hope to see you your girlfriend soon and your daughter as well one day
0: thank you so much Sullivan I said hello